HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Tuesday, March 14th, 2023. This is our 351st episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, I am on location in Los Angeles with an outstanding chef and owner at her two Michelin star restaurant, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, just to note, we did a little rescheduling, so for regular listeners, my guest Gia Vecchio will be coming up in a couple weeks, so stay tuned for that. And today, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, then later we'll have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to pursue work that you have an honest love for. This advice is actually inspired by my guest today who shared this idea in my upcoming book, ChefWise, and I completely agree. We should do what we love and immerse ourselves in work that motivates us and makes us want to get up every day and do our best. Success will come if we follow our passions. So let's live for the love of work. That's my tip today. Okay, I'm so excited, as I said, to be on location in Los Angeles with my guest, who is Nikki Nakayama. She is the chef and owner of the acclaimed two Michelin star restaurant, En Naka, which serves as a global destination for modern kaseki with a California twist. Alongside her wife and co-chef, Carol Ida Nakayama, Nikki serves world-class, artfully curated, exquisite dishes, and a progression designed to reflect the mood of the season, time, and place. She is also the chef and partner at En Soto, her second concept, which was born during the pandemic, and she's a contributor to my upcoming book, Chef Wise. 
without further ado, hi Nikki. Hi Sherry, <laughs> thank you for having me today. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you, I'm so excited to be here with you in person and doing this interview. Um, what a treat. Uh, so thank you for making the time and I can't wait. I, I just, I, I wanna hear all about your story and your background and so, I, I always start with my guests and find out just how they got into the industry. So you want to just take us back to like what led you into becoming a chef? Sure. Um, I was in Japan when I was 19. I just graduated from um, high school and I was um, studying music a little bit and had decided uh, back when I was 12 or 13 that that was going to be something I wanted to do something someday uh, to go to Japan and, you know, learn more about the culture and also perhaps immerse myself in some sort of music world um, if I had the opportunity. So while I was there, my mother came to visit me and you know, of course my mom being, you know, a worried parent wanted to know what direction I was really going to take in uh, for life. So when we would travel throughout um, the city of Tokyo, we just did a lot of eating. It's and a great place to do eating. Yes, it's a really <laughs> amazing place to do eating. And um, we would see advertisements everywhere for culinary school. And she had suggested to me at that time, maybe you should go to culinary school. I mean, this is such a great country to learn about cooking and, you know, uh, get more into depth and have something to do with your life was basically what she told me. And the idea of it made me laugh. Like, I don't think that's the path for me, but thank you. <laughs> Uh, and then, um, so I was there for about nine months, close to a year, um, nine months to 10 months. And um, I decided maybe the life in Tokyo wasn't something that I could continue for a long time because it felt so uh, big and so different from growing up in the suburbs of Los Angeles. Right. And I started to feel a little bit homesick and wanted to maybe look into a different um, way of, the different uh, way of educating myself with learning more about music and um, so I decided to visit my relatives in the countryside who have a ryokan. Uh, a ryokan is a Japanese style inn and mostly most of them if not all of them serve a form of kaiseki mm -hmm. because that is um, considered one of the most elevated forms of dining in Japanese cuisine and I stayed with them for uh, maybe like a month before I was heading back home. And because I was there, my aunt was like, you should do something, not just sit around and wait for your time to go home. So she sent me to the kitchen and I ended up helping washing dishes and sort of uh, learning little things. And as I was doing it, I recognized how this feeling would come over me of just pure calm and relaxation as well as excitement. And I thought, Maybe there is something to this culinary world that I should explore, but I hadn't thought about it very deeply. And then when I came back, my friend who was at that time interested in baking and doing um, desserts found out about a school that was opening in South Pasadena, which was uh, a culinary school. So I went with her to visit and it seemed like a very fun thing to immerse myself in. And I thought, Maybe this could be a path that I could take while I try to figure everything else out. And I was telling my mom 
I'm thinking of going to culinary school, but back here in the States. And she was at that time, because my mom does this all the time. She changes her mind based on however <laughs> she feels. And then she, was, she was like, what? Culinary school? I don't think that's going to work for you. You're too short. <laughs> and then I was I'm short, so I can relate to that joke. I don't know how tall you are, but yeah. <laughs> it was funny because I thought, what does that have to do with anything? Like the physical limitations of anything. But somehow I managed to um, convince her that this would be a great path for me to take. And the funny thing was the first day of culinary school when I actually walked in, there they had this salamander mounted high up against the wall. And I was just shocked to, to feel that, oh my God, I can't see inside. It's so tall and so high above me. So there's a moment where I was asking myself, I wonder if my mom is right. Am I too short for this career? But it's funny because <laughs> side note, I had, I, before I moved to New York in 98, I went to cooking school in Chicago thinking I want to be a chef. I did a six month program and I had one job as garbage at a, at a jazz club. And I remember having a little difficulty, like things were, were hanging, like pots and pans, like high up and reaching things. So I always think of that experience, right. like, no, I don't think you have to be a certain height to be a chef. <laughs> well, the reassuring thing now is at this, at our kitchen now at Naka, because it is custom built, it's actually built to people my height. Oh, good. And then you maybe uh, get a job here. Right. And then most people that come in that are a little smaller always find it rewarding and like, oh, this is so easy to work from. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So, so then talk your, what led you, well, well, then you had the bug, I guess. Yes. Then I got, yes. And then when I uh, went to school, I I started to recognize and realize that it was such a wonderful experience and that unlike the world of music, whenever you have an idea, you can instantly create that product and have it be, there would be a result within a few hours um, of that idea coming through. And that felt, because I I tend to be an impatient person, um, that felt so rewarding. And I recognized that as the more I was doing it, the more I was really, really enjoying it um, because it's a physical, it's tactile and there's so much physicality involved and it just felt that it was the perfect scenario for somebody like me and throughout the year at culinary school I was fortunate enough to work at a few restaurants and as I was it was nice to see that what I was learning was being put to use and that it could be something that of a path that it could take Um, and I felt that the more I learned about cooking, the more I was doing cooking, the more it felt more true to me and true to who I was, who I am. And that's how my career in culinary just began. Began and then blossoms. When, <laughs> I might be jumping ahead, but when did you get the notion that you wanted to open your own place? or And did you, or I know you, did you have some mentors or people along the way that really inspired you and... I feel that um, there is always a desire to have my own place someday, even when I was in culinary school, because I felt that when I think about who I am as a person, I recognize that it's very easy for me to sort of meld or um, bend to 
the needs of others or to do the things that people expect me to do. And I feel that um, if I didn't have a path that I carved out for myself, I would end up just um, never being able to fully express who I am. And I thought if one day when I could find a restaurant, uh, when I had the opportunity, I would love to open a restaurant just so that it could be very pure to my ideas. Right. So, so you did, you did go ahead, you opened, you had a sushi restaurant? I did. Um, but before that I did work with a few, uh, sorry, a few chefs. And of course the most inspiring chef that I worked with was Takao. He has a restaurant called Takao Restaurant in Brentwood. I looked it up because I put it on my, I started on my map. <laughs> uh, he's, he was just an amazing inspiration in that the things that I could not imagine being done to Japanese food he was doing. And mm -hmm. he brought all these other influences with to the cuisine that made it felt feel like it was a lot more open to interpretation than just this traditional style of Japanese food. Um, and plus, he it was so amazing to be in a space where you where I felt that, oh, this person actually believes in what I'm doing versus, you know, casting me aside and just like, oh, you're just... Right. I mean, on some level, he did say those things to me, of course, <laughs> because he's a teacher. But on the other hand, I felt that he had uh, really good intentions for my future. So that was inspiring to me. But And that, and that led you then to open his... Your first sushi restaurant? Um, no, actually, oh, no. after I... You, you went um, back to Japan to yes, cook? Yes, okay. yes. So after I finished <laughs> working with Takao, I always had the intention to go back to the ryokan in Japan uh -huh. to get a real in-depth uh, learning experience of what Japanese food really truly is about. And I wanted to, uh, since I wanted to cook Japanese food, I wanted to have a real true interpretation and presentation of what Japanese food is. Um, so I went back to Japan and stayed there for about three years in the countryside. Sounds lovely. <laughs> it was wonderful. It was wonderful in that I was so immersed in this very, um, this atmosphere, atmosphere of uh, traditional Japanese cuisine away from the influences of the world so that I could have a true grasp of what Japanese food is about. And it was wonderful because they were so close to the Japan Sea and Sado Island. All the seafood products would come from um, the waters there. And I'd never seen seafood that fresh in my whole entire life. It, even at my parents' uh, yeah. seafood company. It was just incredible. Wow. Um, incredible. So you, you, you were there for three years. I was there for three years. And then you came back. And I came back. And... I guess, so, but Japanese cuisine, we have sushi, we have omakase, I mean, there's many types of cuisine, but then, and then we have kaseki, mm -hmm. which you, I mean, you first, your first place you decided to do, you did a sushi restaurant, and then, um, and now we're here at Naka, and you decided to do kaseki, so what kind of led you on that path, and what was it, I mean, having your own places, and doing those different types of cuisine, or these types of cuisine? I think, um, I, in my mind, I always wanted to do kaiseki-style cuisine in, in the States. Mm -hmm. But back then, there wasn't a lot of 
information about kaiseki that like nobody knew what kaiseki was. Everybody, when you thought about Japanese food, thought about sushi or you know like casual eateries yeah. that did um, sushi. So when I was approaching the idea, I told my mom and my family that you know I would love to open a Japanese restaurant, but maybe not have it be sushi. And they were saying that that wasn't a good idea because that's not um, it's not going to be successful in the way that sushi could be because nobody knows what kaiseki is. Yeah. So I took their advice and you know opened a sushi restaurant, and it was a very wonderful learning experience in that um, you quickly start to learn. That there's so many aspects of how to manage and how to take care of a business, aside from the cooking part. Uh, there were times when we, when I first opened, because we talked through the financials and you know discussed so many things, and what came down to was like, oh, you mean I only have to serve about fifty to sixty people a day? How hard could that be? I found out really quickly how hard it really can be yes. because, you know, first of all, to get 50 to 60 people coming into your restaurant when nobody knows or has any inkling of who you are, what your background is, is incredibly hard. So it was a great learning experience to see how to build something from zero. And there are times when it was so hard where I thought I I can't do this. This is just too financially stressful, emotionally stressful, mentally stressful. But there's also that part of me that, you know, remembered my family's words and that, you know, this is this is your only chance. If you don't make this successful, this is the only chance you're gonna get. Yeah. So that was a really it was a really great motivating factor because I didn't want to prove them wrong. I mean, I didn't want them to prove me. Like, I didn't want them to be right, you know? And I wanted to make sure that I just did whatever I could to make the business survive. And luckily, throughout the years, we we were open for eight years. And um, that's, that's, I mean, restaurant, (laughs) in restaurant life, that's, that's a very long time. Yes. Yes. So after eight years of doing the sushi and the food that we were doing over there, I felt that I was ready to move on to something that was more true to who um, I am to what I wanted. So, I guess I have kind of two questions here, but so I was going to ask you if you can define kaseki and, and also your interpretation of it. And the second part of that was because you referenced like people not really knowing what it is or back then. Do you find now that more people are familiar or I, I feel, um, I don't know. I don't know. That's my question. I feel that um, people have an idea of what kaiseki is and that it is a multi-course dinner based off of uh, different cooking methods in the Japanese cuisine world. Mm-hmm. Uh, they understand that it's small portions and very seasonal. I don't think that people um, have a very deep understanding of it because there's not a lot out there that, you know, is there's not a lot out there for people to experience. Especially compared to sushi or right. nowadays. Right, or, right. You know, well, I mean, it depends where what, right. where you live, but right. yeah, I think people are more familiar with it because of the quantity of restaurants that exist. Correct. And I think uh, with kaiseki, it's um, a little bit hard to define in that unless you've actually experienced it, 
it's even in Japan, it's not something that Japanese people eat all the time. It's probably like throughout their lifetime, maybe like 50 if we're lucky.、Um, but it's a very, because it's so, there's so many、um, intricate parts to it, it's very hard to have that be translated within a short amount of time when people dine with you. And I think that、um, there, for example, what, what we do there. It's a kaiseki format, it's a kaiseki cuisine, but there's all these little nuances that we add to it that doesn't necessarily fall in line with what a kaiseki meal that you would experience in Japan would be like. So, when you, and that all makes sense, did you, when you opened, because you now, you've had Anaka now over 10 years. This is our 12th year. That's incredible. Congratulations. <laughs> so, so, from the beginning, and I mean, along the way, you've, you've, Received many accolades, and you have your two Michelin stars now. But, like, from the beginning, which is incredible, <laughs> but from the beginning to now, like, did you change the concept at all? And was it received differently 10 years, 12 years ago? I think、uh, when I first opened, there was more leaning toward、uh, having it be a little bit more traditional、mm-hmm. than, what we're, what, than what we've ended up doing because I felt that、uh, the best way to represent it was to. Put it out there in the way it was meant to be. But in the beginning, as well, I've always tried to take a little liberty with、um, the flavor profiles and the things that we put together. It just felt more honest to the way I cook and who I am.、Um, I always feel that, in terms of Japanese culture and anything that's Japanese,、um, there's such a, a mindset that it has to be done a certain way for it to be truly Japanese. And then I feel that given the location that we are in Los Angeles, California, that's already, you know, not a negative, but it's already taking away from it being really truly a Japanese experience. So I thought that it made sense to add these elements of、um, our environment and our surroundings. But it was a trip to Japan in 2015 where I actually、um, spoke to many different chefs because I'd spent,、um, I'd planned this. You know, trip around eating, and it was. We can be friends. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs>、uh, that I spoke with the chefs, and you know, what they said really made an impactful impression on me that, you know, what makes food really delicious and good is when you really source from places that are closer to you. Because anything that、um, ingredients have a lifespan, and、mm-hmm. when you take into consideration all this traveling that it has to do, Within that lifespan, it changes every single minute、um, that it's not being utilized. Then I thought, well, if that's the case, why am I not showcasing even more California ingredients? So when I came back, I decided to revamp our idea and turn it into more of a California inspired kaiseki menu, which I thought, oh my God, this is what I've been quietly wanting to do or like、yeah. doing without even recognizing, but to be conscious of it and to make even more effort to learn about California ingredients was such an eye opening experience for me. So、um, it made sense. And ever since then, we've done a very California style kaiseki. I thought that that would be、yeah. the most authentic representation of kaiseki philosophy. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I'm so excited. I'm having dinner here <laughs> in a couple nights so I can experience it. Yes.、Um, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward. And I have to, 
Now I have to go back and look it up. But I was just thinking, I took, I was in Japan um, several years ago and I was in Kyoto and I, there's a, there's a Kaseki restaurant there that I went to with my friend and it's, it was phenomenal and I can't think of the name right now, but I was, when you were describing, I don't know, talking about Japan and, and your experience and all that, I feel like I've, I don't know, I had, there's like one really special experience I had there, which, um, yeah, it's so, I think in a sense, it's a bit hard to describe like why, why this experience was so great or beyond just deliciousness on the plate but it's it's like it's an experience yes yes so I'm looking forward to my experience here thank you <laughs> I re-watched your chef's table um which your season one which is incredible um if anyone hasn't watched it um go check out Nikki has her own episode and it was um so how did what I mean how was that experience doing that show and like what was the impact of it the experience of that show was just incredible. It feels today even still like it was just a dream that happened. Um, yeah. So we were approached by uh, David Gelb and the production company to be a part of this new series that they were doing for Netflix. And uh, because David had dined with us previously um, in the past, I thought, oh, you know, of course, David Gelb, Zero Dreams of Sushi, who would say no? And I was telling Carol that, you know, it's probably going to be like five minutes, just a little section on Ennaka. And I'm like, no, we want to give you an episode. And I think we just looked at each other like, what? <laughs> what does that even mean? And no, then, it's, 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 it's very special and it's, it's, it's awesome. It was, yeah, it was very happy for you. Thank you. I just feel like to this day, it was one of the most amazing things that could have happened to us. And because uh, we were... When we opened Ennaka, it was more of a very Los Angeles-centric local scene for us. We had guests just coming, you know, mm -hmm. like old guests, old friends, and, you know, new guests, new friends. But with Chef's Table, it really opened up the world for us. We had people, we started to have people come from all over America. We had people coming from different parts of the world. And it was just a really... Um, amazing experience in that way but I also knew when be right before I came out I remember sitting our whole crew down and telling them this was an opportunity that you know people dream of having in their lives to like get their name out but that also means a lot a whole new level of responsibility you know yeah, we have true. to make sure that people that come know that we that episode that we were worth getting that episode so we wanted to make sure. Yeah, the pressure. I guess it's like the same with the stars. Yeah, I mean, sense. it was there was a good amount of pressure, but there was also a very conscious effort to make sure that we don't want people to feel disappointed when they come to our restaurant. We want them to know that it was, we want that experience to be so special for them that they felt that every step of the way that brought them to us was well worth it. And we still... That's how we, our mindset is today as well. Yeah, well, so looking forward to my experience. Um, before we take a break, talk a little bit about Ensoto, which I'm also going to try to hit before I leave <laughs> <Wonderful>. town. <laughs> if I can squeeze it in. But your second concept, mm -hmm. and it was from what I saw read online, it was developed during the pandemic. 
Yes. So during the pandemic, we started to feel like everybody else with restaurants very isolated from other people and from um, from people in our community, our guests. And so we started doing takeout to, you know, reach people and to just do our best to feed as many people as we could. And during the bento days, we also did um, a lot of fundraising through the bentos. Like we put out a concept bento and use that bento to raise money for a cause. And um, so during the pandemic, we, some because we were doing takeout, we started running out of space here at Anaka. Our space is so small. We were looking for a kitchen that we could do more out of and then we found the Ensoto space and we thought this is a perfect place to you know build more of that community and do things and um, we started to think wouldn't it be amazing if we developed a restaurant that some that eventually was able to welcome different chefs and different cooks and different just welcome people in all the time so that we could collaborate because the whole idea of collaboration was what was missing during the pandemic it felt like we were yeah. all so isolated. And if we could put something out like Ensoto and then collaborate on, you know, bento boxes or collaborate on dinners and things like that and raise money for good causes, it felt like we were doing something at least to alleviate the stress of what the pandemic meant or still means. And I think during times of stress and hardship, I feel like the best way to alleviate those feelings is to reach out and help others more mm-hmm. because then it, it really brings community together and it also um, makes us feel closer to one another. So we don't feel like this is a struggle just completely for ourselves, but you know, understanding that other people are struggling too. So that was the idea behind Ensoto just slowly evolved and we were so excited because we were able to bring on all this talent from other places um, that had either you know like chefs that had their own businesses or chefs that were working with other people but because of the pandemic was no longer able to do those things and we thought it would be amazing to have them continue and do express their talents and share their talents with the world and and so it would be the perfect place to have that happen. Amazing. I love I love the story behind it and, and what you're doing there. And um, yes, I have to make it there too. <laughs> um, awesome. Okay, so on that note, let's take a little break and we will come back. We'll play my speed round. We'll talk some industry news. I have my solo dining experience and the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. 
Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Nikki Nakayama, the chef and owner of the acclaimed two Michelin starred restaurant, En Naka, and she's also the chef and owner of En Soto, both in Los Angeles, where we are today. It's raining out though. It's not the it's not typical, not typical <laughs> LA weather today, but I'll I'll take being out here anytime. I love visiting. Okay, so it's time for my speed round. Okay. So what this is is I'm going to name a couple things and such as chocolate or vanilla mm-hmm. and give you you get to choose between. So I love it. Preference. Okay. <laughs> Sounds so, so fun. Okay, awesome. Here we go. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant. Eat out at a restaurant. Indoor dining or al fresco dining? Indoor dining. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> you look sad about it, but no, that's fine. That's a, I that's like a choice. indoor dining. <laughs> okay. Um, wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Champagne. Ooh. Tasting menu or a la carte? Tasting menu. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Tipping. Cooking for Carol or having Carol cook for you? Cooking for Carol. Being a mentor or being a mentee? Do you have a preference there? Mm, I think both. Is that okay? It's okay. There's no rules for my game. And that's a good, I like the answer. Um, two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Los Angeles. And I guess I got to throw in there. Or Tokyo or anywhere else in Japan. That, all these little, these towns that next time I go visit, I need to ask you about. I would say Osaka. Osaka. I did, I did go there too for one night. It was a week. Yeah, it's amazing. It was. I had a week in Japan. It was tied to a, a trip to Thailand. It was a crazy trip. Um, I'm so glad I saw Osaka, though. Um, and that's amazing you picked Osaka. Osaka is great because there's a, a really great street food scene where you can just walk and just eat your way through the whole day and experience so many flavors and so many fun things. And then, of course, there's, there's always... Uh, nice restaurants to visit, but it's the the energy of Osaka that is yeah. so food. There's an area of Osaka that's all about food, and I think that's one of the most funnest places to visit because you just get this feel of what food culture is like and means to Japanese people. Yeah, yeah, I sensed that just in one day, and I'm trying to think what's the street food that's like a teka teka makiari. I'm saying that. okonomiyaki. Okonomiyaki. Yeah, like to butcher like, that one. No, that's such a long. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, why does it have to be so long? It's a good word. It's got it's a good a rhythm to it. But I, I don't know. When I think of, I had that there. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I always, when I think of Osaka, I think of, of that dish. Yeah. And, and But you're right. It's um, It doesn't get as much as much um, shout outs as, as other cities like yeah. Tokyo or even It's Kyoto. so true. I think Osaka is such a fun city and they do so many fun versions of things. And the, it is the city that created okonomiyaki, and you know they have a, a wonderful 
kushikatsu scene, which is like skewered dishes, but instead of being grilled, it's battered, it's uh, breaded and fried. And yeah. then you can do a whole tasting menu of that. And that in and of itself was, it was so fun. I really wanted to go back to Japan. Um, <laughs> such a such an amazing place. Okay, so that's the game. Um, for industry news this week, I just picked out an article that was in the New York Times entitled, Inside the Top Chef Industrial Complex. Entering its 20th season, the sprawling Bravo franchise has changed the way Americans eat and become a mirror of the restaurant industry. This was by Brett Anderson. It came out on March 9th. And it's a very long article. It's it's a big piece, but it's um, he really did a deep dive into Top Chef and its influence it's had on the industry, and it really has. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty crazy to see. Like, I feel just even that diners are so much more knowledgeable about food. I think from all these shows on TV, but um, yeah, I don't. I I thought we talk about a little bit just because I do think it's it's got it has it's had such an impact but I mean as well as you being on chef's table like that's had an impact so do you I mean how do you feel about this chef tv competition or like the impact you've seen on the industry I feel that um shows like that are wonderful and that it does such a great job of educating uh, viewers about what the world is like uh, what we do Mm -hmm. and of course there's there's the like super real world that we live in on a day-to-day basis, and then there's the compacted version that you see on TV shows. Uh, I think it's created and generated a lot of interest for people to come into the field. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the wonderful thing is that it's made created this excitement about what cooking is like, and um, it's fun to see even my friends talk about, oh, I tried this, or I did this, or, you know... I saw that on Top Chef and I wanted to try that technique and it's just have them get a sense of, have them be so interested in participating in the work that we're doing. I think the, um, the one thing that it's probably maybe might be a little bit um, hard for some people coming into the industry is expecting those results in the way they see on TV. Right. Because realistically with, uh, you know, cooking a restaurant taking care of everything there's so many more elements to it that are like the solving of the day-to-day problems that continuously keep unfolding on you as a person that runs a restaurant yeah and absolutely that's it's different side very that, different yeah it's the side that people don't get to see and it's the less glamorous side but the very realistic side of what this business entails yeah true well it's the same even i think with cooking school like what when you're experiencing what you're doing in day-to-day and learning how to cook is different than running a restaurant or cooking on the line. Totally. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's I, it's incredible, though. I've always felt uh, that Top Chef, the editing is so well done, and they, they really... I mean, there's a reason why all these copycat shows are out there now. Like, a lot of people took their format <laughs> and and um, have done other versions or their own version of it, um, and... And I feel I know so many people that have been on the competition and won or not even, or the one thing is the six, like there's a lot of chefs who competed who didn't, like came, like they didn't, I don't know when they, what place they came in, but were ultra um, successful after appearing. I'm thinking like Carla Hall, I don't, I don't know what she might, I mean, she was a top contender, Mm -hmm. but she, um, 
No, she didn't. She wasn't the winner, but you see where she, her career went. Mm -hmm. And um, it's pretty. I'm uh, Stephanie Izard, mm -hmm. uh, who did win, and yes. um, she's in she's in Chef Wise, which is I'm excited about my book. And yes. so is Tom Tom Palicchio, mm -hmm. so Judge, and yeah, the casting they did with Gail and Padma and Tom. I mean, it's um, they put together a great show. So I give them a lot of credit. Yes. So, um, yeah, we'll see. I'm curious to see how many years keeps going, keeps going. You I, know? Think, I think there's just a good amount of excitement. And I think um, their whole show uh, premise has really done a good job of researching what the next things are for the industry. Mm -hmm. And then I think uh, with food, the wonderful thing is that there's so much to discover. Yeah, it did touch on that, even how it, like, between molecular gastronomy mm -hmm. and chefs also now showcasing their cuisine, like, mm -hmm. their roots. Right. And being able to do that. And, right. and that, I think, is has been a huge shift or, or mm -hmm. opportunity mm -hmm. um, and creating so much more awareness about different cuisines, like African cuisine yes. and things people yes. typically weren't be as familiar with. Yes. So... All right, cool. So, check it out. It's it's a it's it's a good piece, but it's it's a long read. Um, but um, yeah, um, congratulations, to Top Chef. Okay, so for my solo dining experience this week, I went to a place called Gem Wine. Here's the rundown: the location, two nine seven Broom Street, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. The concept: it's a neighborhood wine bar near its sister restaurant, Gem. The chef and owner is Flynn McGarry. Why'd I go? Well, this was actually, uh, it was some, it was mid-January. I happened to be in the neighborhood. Um, I remember it being very cold outside. And I was I was looking for a bite to eat. And um, I was nearby. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. I'm going to stop in. So um, my experience, uh, it was a weekday night. I popped in. Didn't have a reservation. Uh, I got a seat. I don't think they take reservations. Um, but um, I... It was pretty early. There were it was got it filled up as I was as I was there, but I got a seat um, at the counter by the window, and I ordered a couple of plates, and my server was really nice, and it was just a a nice like casual evening out by myself. So what I get, I got the fluke with green citrus and black trumpet oil, which was one small plate, and the other small plate I got was apple miso and radish salad, and I didn't have wine; I just had water. My take. Both delicious, and they really complemented each other. I thought they went really well together, and I loved the, the, the sashimi. The fluke was super fresh, and um, the apple miso radish combo really worked well together. Recommend both dishes. I think they changed their menu a lot, though, so don't, <laughs> don't know if it will be on there, but I'm sure um, if it is, order them. The ambiance. So it's, it's a low-lit, low-key, intimate space. It has some communal tables running like horizontally across it um and uh it's 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 intimate it's um i'd say it's perfect for a date night interesting tidbit so flynn is known as a culinary wonder kind mm -hmm. he opened his first restaurant gem in 2018 at age 19 he began cooking at age 10 he operated a supper club out of his mother's home at age 12 and sages he did at top restaurants before the age of 16 Personal fun fact, 
many years ago, I don't know how many years ago, but he had his first pop-up in New York. It was in the meatpacking district. And I went to his tasting menu and it was really great and special. Um, and then more recently, I went back to Jam, his, which I hadn't been to. Um, and I went with uh, Emily Takudis of Fiden and we both know him. And um, we had a lovely meal. He was doing a tasting menu of featuring seafood dishes inspired by traditional Portuguese dishes. So he changes his menu seasonally with whatever's inspiring him. Mm -hmm. And he's also in Chef Wise, which I'm excited about. Uh, the cost of the meal was $36, not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes. And their website is gem-nyc.com and Instagram, they got gem.wine. There you go. So do you come to New York? I, ha I haven't <laughs> been to New York since, I think the last time I was there was 2017, 2018. But I am planning a trip this year in May to uh, do something uh, with the CIA for a little bit. Um, and it's going to be my first trip to New York in over three years, I think. But I'm really excited to visit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, if if you need a dining partner or you need any recommendations, which you probably I'm, know where to no, go, but let me know. Definitely gonna reach out. That'd be so fun. <laughs> let me know. Let me know. Um, Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, so it's time for the final question. So my next guest is Robert Simonson. He's a writer about cocktails, spirits, bars, and bartenders for the New York Times. He's the creator and the author of the Substack newsletter, The Mix, with Robert Simonson. And he's written lots of books, and they're all around cocktails mostly. There's the, the Old Fashioned, there's A Proper Drink, there's Three Ingredient Cocktails. He's a very, very established writer. Um, so, Nikki, can you please ask a question for Robert? Okay. Um, my question to Robert is... Is there a Japanese flavor profile that he feels really matches um, tequila? Ooh, cool. I like it. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. <laughs> All right, I'm going to find out. Um, great question. And um, that's the show. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I know I mentioned it a couple times about my book, Chef Boys, coming out that you're a part of. And I'm just so grateful um, to, to, well, first of all, to be here with you and talking to you, but to have you as a contributor, it's meant so much to me. So thank, thank you so you. much. I'm so honored to be in your book and I'm so honored to be on your podcast. Thank you for having me. And um, I can't wait to have you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm coming back in, in, I think, two days. So stay uh, and I, I feel I feel it might be um, a solo dining experience on a future show. So uh, I was gonna say <laughs> talk about it. I always tell people come in, have a good time, but please come in with low expectations. Low expectations. I hear you. I'll have the lowest possible. Thank you. <laughs> I can't wait. Lowest possible, but thank you and congratulations on everything that you've thank achieved you. and you. all your success. It's amazing. So my guest today has been Nikki Nakayama. She's the chef and owner of the acclaimed two Michelin starred restaurant Ennaka. She's also the chef and owner of Ensoto, both in Los Angeles. And you can 
go to her website to find out more at n-naka.com and n-sodo.com. You can follow at n-naka restaurant and at n-sodo restaurant and at Nikki Nakayama. I got that all that right. <laughs> a lot of ends in there. <laughs> a lot of ends. Basically, it's for the for the Instagram. It's n n a k a restaurant. Correct. So it's just two ends at the beginning, but you should be able to find it. Um, you can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer P, at, at at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. The book I've been talking about, Chef Wise, Life Lessons from Leading Chefs Around the World by Fiden, is now available for pre-order. And my new publishing date is May 3rd, so stay tuned for that. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. I'm very excited. And I have to say, so last night, why I'm in Los Angeles is I went to an awards ceremony last night for the Taste Awards. Um, which was at the Writers Guild Theater in Los Angeles. And I was there because my show won. I won Best Host. That is amazing. <laughs> so it was very cool. Um, and and so one of the other winners there was uh, Love Charlie's documentary. Um, Rebecca Halpern, who was a recent guest on my show, and Renee Frigo, um, they both won, they won awards. And... Um, Roper was there, you won, and Livia Bastianich, and so it was a very memorable evening. Um, so thank you, Taste Awards, and thank you all listeners out there. Uh, appreciate you. Okay, uh, my engineer today, Armin, thank you so much. Thanks again to Nikki, and thanks so much to her publicist, Anne. I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bayer, signing off from Los Angeles. Thank you, as always, for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.